National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year, we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. The House authorizes an impeachment inquiry, and will Trump, if elected, be a dictator? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made In and Donors Trust. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, when Republicans first started going down this impeachment route, they relied on the Nancy Pelosi precedent, which is having the Speaker of the House deem an impeachment inquiry open when Pelosi did this in the Trump years there was a lot of Republican pushback. This is not legitimate. Uh, this, there's no legal standing for this. The entire House has to, to vote for an inquiry, but that Republicans didn't have the votes to start an inquiry. So McCarthy deemed the inquiry open, but promised there would be a vote. Seemed uh, kind of uh, un- unlikely, maybe. It, it took a while. There's now a new speaker, Mike Johnson. But lo and behold, he got all the votes, including what would seem, seem to be um, the lone holdout. Ken Buck was upset, something the White House did, and ended up voting to open the inquiry as well. Uh, yesterday afternoon or evening, we're recording on Thursday morning here. What do you make of it? Well, um, politically, I don't – I think it's probably a wash for Republicans. Um, I think the public – tends to punish uh, impeachers who they think are not being serious. On the other hand, you know, if the um, formal impeachment inquiry allows them to, you know, uh, play harder ball with subpoenas and get more evidence into the public uh, ahead of the election, I mean, I think that's that's the play. Um, it's not to actually remove Biden from office through uh, Congress. But to try to just get as much dirt on the the Biden family uh, business and psychodrama and get it out into the public, um, so I think it's a wash. I mean, it's a it's a little bit of a victory for Mike Johnson. This is a very tiny Republican majority, and he managed to get this through. Um, you know, almost any vote getting through a majority this small is a victory. Um, so I just wait to see what else it turns up. I mean, I think, I think the story has started to stick to Biden, uh, but I'm skeptical that there are more details, uh, to come that we haven't seen yet that that are going to be turned up now. Yeah. His, his numbers in the polling on honesty and corruption, I think he's maybe still leads Trump on those, but it's not as big as you would expect. So I, I do think he's taken on some water here. And and I, I guess I tend to agree it's, it's kind of a wash. It, politically, it draws more attention uh, to the issue. But I mean, there's a big potential downside if they can't actually I- impeach him. And given the difficulty they had get, wrangling the votes for the inquiry, they might have more difficulty wrangling the votes for articles of impeachment. And then there's also the, just the standard. You know, it's no longer, it was this wrong and unethical what Biden did. It's, you know, was it bribery or, or a high crime and misdemeanor? 
And Republicans stumbled on this a little bit in their their first hearing after they they opened the uh, inquiry just under the speaker's power when Jonathan Turley said, "I don't think the you know I don't think it's it's impeachable yet." Um, so so that that standard is also a hurdle. And then I, I just basically don't think unless the circumstances are really dire, I don't think you should impeach someone unless there's some chance of something flaking loose uh, in in the Senate. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of pointless. But Maddie Hunter Biden, he is under subpoena, and one reason Republicans say they want to go down this route is they say it it makes it easier to enforce their subpoenas against Hunter and James Biden. But as Andy McCarthy pointed out, they subpoenaed him and and had had uh, his date to show up prior to the impeachment inquiry vote, which didn't make a lot of sense. And Hunter uh, adopted a really aggressive tone. He, he showed up and gave a statement to the press before for leaving and defying the subpoena. And it was all about uh, what terrible things the, the MAGA Republicans are doing to him. Yeah, so this is kind of related to what you were saying about the best shot of removing Biden from office is that um, is that he doesn't get elected again. And obviously his approval rating is pretty low. Uh, he's dogged with these various scandals. And I think with the Hunter Biden's appeal to the press, he's trying to make a bid for himself in the court of public opinion as well. He's, he thinks that's the more important fight than whatever happens um, in Congress. And, you know, the bottom line is this is a guy who didn't pay his taxes, was making massive profits from foreign money, lived uh, a life, uh, a sordid and, and uh, luxury life that most Americans cannot relate to. So it's, it's kind of audacious, to, to put it mildly, for him to, to try and claim to be the victim um, but that is that is the the defense, and that that has been his defense from the beginning. Is this idea that he's been singled out for for um, unfavorable treatment because his last name is Biden? Of course, the opposite is really the case. He's been given um, special uh, pleas and sweetheart deals and and all sorts just because uh, of his connections. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is what what Biden's really best shot is is if he can make the Republicans appear to be partisan, um, appear to be, you know, just motivated by by the politics of it, um, then he's going to have a better shot of this not sticking. And this is the vulnerability of, of impeachment in that it could backfire in that court of public opinion. Yeah. So Hunter, you know, had, had a high, high living lifestyle there when he was in the midst of this addiction, which I guess is not unusual. The, these these people often will just spend every cent they they have uh, and, and waste it on, on drugs and other dissolution, but the difference with Hunter was it was subsidized. The lifestyle was subsidized by th- this massive flow of foreign money on the pretense that he was a great influential um, mover and shaker in Washington and an incredible businessman. At, at the, the same time, he was in the grips of this terrible addiction and, and basically capable of, of doing very little except for sending threatening text messages to these sources of foreign money and and hanging out with escorts. But Charlie, what, what do you make of the impeachment inquiry vote? I've changed my mind on this. I was for a long time a voice warning Republicans that they hadn't yet made the case in the court of public opinion and that this was going to matter. And I now think that this is their best shot to make that case. I am astonished at the brazen way in which the White House and the press are just denying that there is anything here. Not suggesting that it might not be an impeachable offense, denying that there is anything here. The New York Times yesterday reported on this Republican move, arguing that there was nothing that could possibly justify this investigation. It didn't note that Joe Biden's denials, one by one, have fallen apart. It didn't say there is not yet evidence that Joe Biden was personally involved, which is true. It said there was nothing to justify the investigation. The Times also removed the word financially from Hunter Biden's appearance. <laughs> yeah. Before. So explain explain the significance of that, Charlie. So suddenly it used to be Joe Biden wasn't involved and now it's not he wasn't financially involved. Right. Well, Hunter Biden said my father was never financially involved in my business. And the New York Times reported this as Hunter 
uh, Joe Biden was never involved in Hunter Biden's business, which matters because that is a shift in the defense. Joe Biden said from the beginning that he was never involved at all, but it came out that that wasn't true, that he'd been on various phone calls, he'd sent emails, he'd been adjacent to, at the very best, meetings. Another good example of the way in which this is being emphatically denied, bizarrely, absurdly, dishonestly denied, is with Joe Biden's account of his son's behavior. Back when Joe Biden announced he'd be running for a second term, I think it was May of this year, he told Stephanie Rule on MSNBC, quote, first of all, my son has done nothing wrong. I trust him. That's not true. Now, that doesn't mean Joe Biden should be impeached. But Hunter Biden has done a lot of things wrong. Hunter Biden is being prosecuted by Joe Biden's administration for doing a lot of things wrong, for being what Joe Biden would call a wealthy tax cheat if it were anyone else. That the press remains this, it's not even uninterested, this willing to go to the mat for Joe Biden suggests to me that the only avenue Republicans have is this inquiry. They have done a good job thus far pushing this into the public consciousness. They have not been helped in any way by the democracy dies in darkness crowd. In fact, they've been stymied. But they've done a good job, and I don't think they have any other choice here. It seems possible to me, possible to me, that this really is an impeachable offense, that Joe Biden really was involved. Certainly all of his denials and descriptions have been proven false. And the press is working overtime now to massage the way that it talks mm-hmm. about this case to avoid concluding that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we- so what are Republicans supposed to do? They're supposed to say, oh, well, the press won't play ball. The White House keeps denying it. Let's leave it alone. No, I don't think this is frivolous at all. I think there have been a lot of frivolous impeachment inquiries. I don't like the way that both parties come into power and are immediately looking to impeach the new president. But sometimes there are pieces of evidence that make you wonder whether there is something terrible. Yeah, and well, I'm we, afraid there are enough of these. We have, and if we it have were checks. Republican, it would... We have checks. You know, we have checks! And, and the story on the James Biden to Joe Biden checks is that it was a loan repayment. The same thing with Hunter's but my understanding, at least on the James Biden, is not. It hasn't been. A, we haven't seen the evidence that uh, of this actual loan that Joe made that was supposedly repaid. So, so Charlie, just let me stick with you one, one last thing. So, what what would what in your view would constitute evidence of an of a no kidding impeachable offense here? Is it Joe Biden distorting you know public policy to to favor uh, one of these clients, or would it be Joe just getting? Um, you know, more evidence that Joe was getting money. I think the bar has to be quite high. And I say that both because that is my standard in general. I understand this isn't a criminal prosecution, but we should have a reflexive preference for the presumption of innocence in the United States. And I would not want us to lower the bar here purely because we were discussing an unpopular president or a president I don't like. Certainly evidence of changing public policy. If there were any evidence of that, not only should Biden resign, but he should be regarded as one of the worst figures in American political history. That would be almost literally what the founders worried about. Almost literally why they put in the impeachment provision Uh, within the Constitution. They were absolutely terrified that politicians would be on the take from foreign nations and affect American foreign policy. Yeah, the Federalists were worried that the the Jeffersonian Democrats were in the pay or going to be uh, taken over by the French, and and the the, uh, Jeffersonians were worried the Federalists were going to be taken over by the British. Yeah, and as for your second example, I think that as with Richard Nixon, the question changes as time progresses. Would it be absolutely terrible if Joe Biden had helped his son made a lot, make a lot of money while Joe Biden was vice president? Yes, it would. And I think people would understand how bad that was if it were Donald Trump. Do you remember all that emoluments clause mm-hmm. talk? But 
I think Jen, now, Jen Rubin wrote, wrote about 100 pieces about that. I didn't read one of them, right. but I saw the headlines. <laughs> but now, now that Biden's denied it, now that he said he never had any involvement whatsoever, now that he said his son has done nothing wrong, of course that would be grounds for resignation. I don't know if it quite fits within the impeachment process, but the impeachment inquiry could yield that information, provide it to the American public. And the American public would then be absolutely within its rights. In my view, it would be obligated to demand that Joe Biden resign. Because having told everyone that on his word as a Biden, he didn't do anything, if it turned out that, yes, actually, he made a bunch of money through his son while he was vice president using his office, of course, that would be a scandal that warranted the end of his career. MBDX, question to you. Joe Biden will be impeached by the House. Yes or no? No. Just the, just the votes won't be there? Yeah, votes, votes won't be there, but the, um, the open inquiry will hurt him. Maddie? Uh, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with Michael. Charlie? Well, I think that's an impossible question to answer because essentially you're asking me whether or not Joe Biden did it. If Joe Biden did it, or at least if we find more information than we currently have, yes, he'll be impeached. And he'll have to resign. If the impeachment inquiry throws up no new information, if in other words, it's not an inquiry so much as a recitation, then no, he won't be impeached. <clears throat> I think this is a, it's a tough question. Uh, um, the, the, the logic of it, obviously, the political gravity of it is... You open the inquiry, you gotta, you gotta impeach him. Um, so that kind of makes me think they'll, you know, Mike Johnson will tw twist the arms the same way he did in the inquiry, and and get the get the votes. But it it's going to be a close call. I think I'm going to tip over to MBD and Maddie and say no, he won't be impeached. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Made in Cookware. If you're considering the pros and cons of different cookware brands, you should know that Made in has more of the pros. Pros like Tom Colicchio, Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, and many other professional chefs who all trust their cooking to Made in Cookware. Fact is, Made in has a long-standing relationship with professional chefs. The company evolved from a 100-year-old kitchen supply business and works with multi-generational makers to craft each piece. They make exactly what demanding chefs are looking for, including a wide selection of curated products from carbon steel to stainless clad, plus plateware, glassware, and more. But perhaps the biggest pro is that Made in is sold online and delivered to your door all for a fraction of the price of other top brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, invest in made-in cookware. Once you try it, you'll be pro made-in too. And I assure you, this is true. We have made-in cookware here in the Lowry kitchen. We love it. It cooks evenly. It's easy to clean and easy to handle. Right now, editors, listeners, can get 10% off full-priced items from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's M-A-D-E-I-N, cookware.com slash editors, madeincookware.com slash editors. Check it out. I assure you, you will not regret it. So, Maddie, we've had a controversial and heartbreaking abortion case in Texas. A, um, a woman, I believe, uh, a mother of two has... Um, a, uh, had an infant, <clears throat> um, had a child, was with a child that was diagnosed with a, a, a terrible uh, chromosomal deficiency, I believe, that would likely result in a stillbirth or uh, in the, the child's death shortly uh, after being delivered. The woman was seeking an abortion um, on various grounds, one of which is that if she delivered the baby, uh, she would have to have another C-section or third C-section, which would present some some risks in a future pregnancy, and she was hoping to have uh, more children. This became um, a legal fight. There was a, a lower court in Texas that said she could have the abortion. Then the Texas Supreme Court said no. Uh, the standard here is um, you know health, life of the mother. That standard has not uh, been met. She went to another state to have the abortion and the case has uh, been made a, a big cause by the 
the pro-choice side making the argument that the Texas law and all of us pro-lifers are extremists and anti-women and cruel and have no compassion for people in such circumstances. What do you make of it? Well, the, the first thing to say is the facts matter in such cases and the facts have, as they often are, been mischaracterized. So addressing the medical and legal question first, Texas law allows abortion when a doctor is exercising reasonable medical judgment. And that's, you know, that is subjective. It's it's for them. They don't have to consult other people. Um, and in that, a reasonable medical judgment determines that the pregnancy poses a risk of death or serious risk of substantial impairment of, an, of a major bodily function um, unless the abortion is performed or induced. So the first thing to say is that the the doctor, and so it was the, the couple, the, the mother and father of this unborn child, and their physician who um, petitioned the court for pre-authorization for, for an abortion. And the uh, Travis County Court um, granted them this, and then the Texas Supreme Court overturned it. And they did so on the basis that um, they were asking the court to pre-authorize the abortion, yet did not um, attest to the court that uh, Miss Cox's condition actually posed the risk that the exception requires. So, you know, she, she the, a lot of this revolves around this question of um, having a C-section. The, the important thing to, to note here is that the baby's condition does not affect the the mother any more than than a healthy pregnancy would. So, if we're saying um, that we think that the risk of a C of a third C-section, which I think is like less than one percent, that that it's going to compromise your your future fertility. But if we think that's that's enough, that's enough that um, you should be able to abort a baby at twenty weeks. Um, this is a you know a, a very developed uh, uh, unborn child at this point. If you think that that's that's the case, then argue that and try and have the laws in Texas change to that. But it's disingenuous, frankly, to say that this is about um, the health of the mother when, in fact, it's it's actually about the condition of the child. And abortion at this stage of pregnancy is dismemberment. It's um, pulling the child out piece by piece. And, you know, I, again, there, there may be people who, who sincerely believe that that is um, more humane than, than giving birth to a child and, and sort of giving them palliative care when, once they're in the world. I, I don't understand how you can argue that, but but I, I accept that some people do. Um, but I think that, that loss in this debate is is just humanity for a, a very um, vulnerable, disabled child who is, you know, being treated like some sort of Frankenstein's monster, um, you know, and it's just... It's just awful, and it and it's it's incredibly disingenuous the way that it's been framed. I think that there would we'd all benefit from a bit more honesty here. If you think that um, disabled people should be euthanized in utero, argue that, but stop pretending that this is about um, a mother at death's door being denied life saving care because that's simply not the case. So, so just to underline the the point that the the woman's lawyer and the petition did not. Did, did not say the doctor said that this is a, a threat that, to, to her health. It was more kind of vague, vague, vague language that might make you know the uncareful reader think that, but that that's not what was said. Well, is that correct? They, they claim it's, it's a threat to her her health and her future fertility going forward, but the but that isn't the standard that Texas requires. Texas requires this to be you know permanent impairment to bodily function or rest of the life of the mother. Now, if you want to make the argument that a third C-section poses um, substantial risk of, of permanent bodily impairment, um, you, you could try and make that argument. I don't think it holds up because, like I say, it's, it's a, like less than 1% risk. And people don't generally make this argument about healthy wanted babies. Um, it's understood yeah. that pregnancy involves risks. Um, this is this this also comes from you know obviously that this diagnosis was made through amniocentesis and there's a whole in obstetrics there's a whole area of of just toxic information that that introduces this question of abortion in in past cases where in, in past generations when actually what would happen would be you would 
find out at birth that your child was disabled and it would be devastating, but then you would behave like a human being, right? Mm -hmm. You you would love and care for that child for whatever time that they had. Um, Instead of introducing this, okay, we we know ahead of time that this is the case. Um, Do you want to dismember this child? My my point is that if this was um, a healthy pregnancy, I I seriously doubt anyone would be arguing that the risk of a third C-section would justify dismemberment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we we have testimony from parents in such terrible situations, just how profoundly comforting it is to uh, hold such a child. You know, even even if uh, even if briefly, but MD, MBD, I think you know Maddie uh, describes it very well and makes a very strong and compelling moral case. My fear is, and and I forget the details about the case in in Ireland, right? But there there was a, a case in Ireland that basically just ended the pro life regime in in Ireland. And my, my right. fear is maybe this this doesn't have this effect on the abortion argument in in the US but eventually such a case could yeah i mean the 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 savita halapanaver case in ireland was um was used by the press uh to push ireland into um a referendum on abort on legal abortion and um the details of that case are um hotly disputed um you know basically the, the woman died of of sepsis the cure of w- which is not abortion um but it was um a medical malpractice around her sepsis and her her crisis pregnancy at the time that led to her death um yeah i mean the case in texas is being used politically of to portray pro-lifers as um people who want to inflict the suffering of um, watching a severely disabled um, child be born and die or to carry a corpse of a child to term uh, at the risk of the mother's life. Um, Neither of these is true, although I do think a lot of people do choose abortion uh, in order to... um, you know, it, to, to deal with these uh, adverse diagnoses for their unborn children, um, that they literally do not want to face the, the reality. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I want to, I want to add to um, Maddie's challenging of, of public perceptions in these cases. Um, doctors will come up with a, a diagnosis of, a trisomy disorder and immediately recommend abortion. This happened to a friend of mine, uh, not a few years ago. And it turned out that the, uh, trisomy only affected the placenta, not the child. And the child was born, um, a few weeks early, but is a healthy, happy baby boy, uh, about five years old. Um, uh, I'm sorry, three years old. The, um, an, another, um, we know Rick Santorum has a child with trisomy 18. Um, he, she is, uh, I think, I don't know. She's in her teens, uh, now. And doctors told him that her condition was incompatible with life and that she should be put on hospice in the first 10 days of her life. Um, you know, the, women are are often pressured into these decisions without full information and with scare stories about what kind of medical bills or trauma they're facing in the future. And um, I think they should be careful about it and get second opinions um, wherever possible. Um, You know, the, the, the ethical guide not to deliberately cause the death of a child actually allows a lot of children to live um, and, and to live fulfilling lives. Um, so yeah, it's a sad case. I do think it probably hurts Republicans politically, um, because people are just terrified, uh, of ever being in these situations. And they're terrified of the idea that the law would, um, 
have something to say or intervene in uh, a, a desperately sensitive situation like this. But um, in this case, I believe the law w- would protect life. Charlie. I don't know how much more there is to add. I think the court was not asked to determine the policy, but to interpret it. Given the way in which the law is written and the facts of the case, it did so correctly. But that law, as you suggest, Rich, is probably going to hurt Republicans. I do think that's what we should be arguing about, not the court. As Maddie says, if you want to change the law here, change the law. It's a difficult one. We are on the wrong side of public opinion on it. Even when we're on the right side of public opinion on abortion, drawing up the lines is quite tough because there's always going to be an exceptional case or a set of circumstances that don't quite meet the statutory definitions or that yield outcomes that people find intuitively tough. But this is what we wanted, rightly. We wanted these questions to be determined at the state level. They are being determined at the state level. And we're going to have to fight it. And we can complain all we like about people massaging the truth and trying to find that magic bullet case that brings down the whole edifice. But they're going to do that. That's politics. We wanted this in the political realm. It's in the political realm. And going forward... This is going to be a part of our politics, unless, of course, every state takes it away and constitutionalizes it again. So I think the court was right. I think the law is well-intentioned. I do worry that it's going to be unpopular in the long run. So, Maddie, the online outlet Axios, one of their newsletters yesterday, the subject header was the Republicans' abortion nightmare, meaning, you know, in political terms, are Republicans experiencing an abortion nightmare? Um, yeah, I mean, th- these types of cases are are very difficult. Um, the, you know, it, it, it's this is in, in the same category as uh, somebody – asking somebody to not abort their their baby from rape. Um, you know, th- these are these are the the rare cases that that pro-lifers find very difficult to argue about. They're they're right on principle and in fact when people live out that principle you see incredibly profound moving displays of heroism. But you are kind of asking for heroism in a in a in a legal and political landscape where abortion is on the table. You're asking people to be heroic in not choosing it. Um, and of course, the law is a teacher, and by having laws that um, that take that off the table, you're encouraging people to do the right thing. But it's difficult because the laws in Texas aren't quite where the public opinion is, um, and that tension is going to be felt for a long time. And uh, I mean, is that is that a political nightmare? You know, maybe so, but we just have to, you know, we just have to keep going and and keep trying to win over hearts and minds. MAD, abortion nightmare, yes or no? Um, yes. I mean, it's it's a nightmare for Republicans in that they're not prepared to answer. Uh, they, they're totally unprepared for their success in overturning Roe. Um, the other side was not unprepared. Um, our culture is one that uh, is hostile to family formation and children um, in a profound way. Um and, um, you know, another big thing is that, you know, the medical profession is not, uh, well equipped for these eventualities. They, they, um, as I said, in, in my, my friend's case, the, the original OBGYN and other fetal specialists looked at her totally agog that she wouldn't immediately choose abortion upon, uh, their, their initial diagnosis. Uh, and she had to go to a specialist who dealt in the most desperate cases and who themselves was probably a, a pro-life Catholic doctor. Um, so, you know, the, the medical field itself is not like <laughs> uh, pro-life. And when you're relying on them for the medical care you need, it's very difficult to get them to consent 
or make it seem real, uh, like uh, choosing life is realistic. So it's, it is a nightmare. This is the, the discovery of the depth of the problem after 50 years. Try. Um, I think that nightmare is far too strong a word. I think it is a serious political liability that Republicans will have to work hard to overcome. I don't think it's a nightmare. This case is uh, an outlier. I think most voters know it. The center of gravity in American politics on the question of abortion is not where the Republicans are, but it's not where the Democrats are either. People are revolted by late-term abortions. They're revolted, in fact, by second uh, trimester abortions. Where Republicans have a problem, it's with their opposition to abortion in the first trimester, which is broadly popular, that's 65-66%. I don't think that presents a nightmare. I think it presents a challenge and one that Republicans have not been especially good at meeting yet. So I accept Charlie's reasoning that uh, nightmare is too strong. I think challenge is a little too uh, is a little too soft, some, somewhere in between the two. And the thing is, is cowardice is not an option. And no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it's been so far, and it's probably going to get um, harder before it gets easier, there's just no alternative to fighting through it. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Donors Trust. We're in the thick of the giving season, and I'm not just talking about giving presents. You probably think about your charitable giving as well. Simplify your charitable giving this year by opening a donor-advised fund with our friends at Donors Trust. The Donor Advised Fund is the simple, flexible, tax-friendly way to do your charitable giving. And for Nashville readers and listeners, Donors Trust is the best partner to work with. Donors Trust has been a longtime friend of NR. You've probably seen Donor Trust ads in the print magazine. It's a great partnership because Donor Trust was built with National Review listeners in mind. Charitable people who think America's founding was a good thing and that free markets improve life for everyone. As the end of the year approaches, now is the perfect time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and see how a fund can help you minimize taxes, avoid the year-end rush, and help you maximize your charitable impact. And Donors Trust is more than a way to give. It's a partner that's committed to honoring your donor intent and works with charitable givers of all incomes across the country. The team from Donors Trust will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. You might already have a donor advised fund, or maybe you're considering one for the first time. Why not partner with the fund that shares your values? For National Review listeners, that's Donors Trust. Learn more and get everything you need to get started at www.donorstrust.org slash editors. That's www.donorstrust.org slash editors. So Charlie, you are not a friend of dictatorship. And this is a, an argument Very that's nice been made. Very nice of you to confirm. Thank you. <laughs> There's the one thing I've learned through my <laughs> years as a colleague with you. So uh, there are fears that that's exactly what Donald Trump will be if he's elected again. Robert Kagan, the great foreign policy analyst and historian, I am, as it happens, I'm reading his latest book, as we speak about American foreign policy from 1900 to 1941 called The Ghost at at the Feast. A wonderful book, original, subtle, and he wrote a big op-ed and the Washington Post got a lot of attention arguing that Donald Trump is uh, going to be a dictator, pretty much starting with uh, locking up the the Republican nomination. And I was not as enamored with this op-ed as I I am with, with the book. I think it was kind of taking conventional wisdom about Trump and then sort of turning it up to 11. But You know, he tried to overturn a legitimate election in 2020, as we talked a lot about. That's alarming. It should be alarming to, you know, people on our side. It's going to be especially alarming to to people on the the other side who oppose uh, everything about Trump, all his his works. And then uh, Trump did an interview with Sean Hannity where where Sean, as is his want, was trying to to coax Trump uh, around to, to saying the the most um, politically advantageous things and putting the the best light 
on uh, his his program and himself, and it was like, "You're not going to be a dictator, right?" And I was like, "No, Sean, uh, just the first day." And this this was a joke, but um, you know, there, there's a context to it, and it freaked a lot of people out, and I've poured more fuel on the dictator debate. Where are you on the dictator debate? All right, so. This satisfies nobody, I've noticed, but here's my view. The United States is better set up than any other nation to avoid a dictatorship because of its separation of powers, its enumerated unalienable rights, and its culture. I have never been worried that Donald Trump would succeed in becoming a dictator. I never worried that Donald Trump would succeed in stealing the 2020 election. The system was arrayed against him in ways that were both mandatory under our Constitution and optional culturally. When he won in 2016... My first reaction was, we'll see what he tries to do. But the structure under which we live will hold. I also don't think Donald Trump should be allowed to be president of the United States. Now, when I say allowed, I don't mean that there is some legal prohibition. There could have been had he been impeached, but he wasn't. People have asked me when discussing this topic in the past, well, what would happen if a Nazi became president of the United States? And the answer is they would take the office. Perhaps Congress would impeach them or find an excuse to get rid of them, but they would take the office and then they would be as bound by the rules as any other executive. That is true across the spectrum. But I don't think Donald Trump should be allowed by the voters to be president of the United States because he has made it clear that he doesn't respect the system. He tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. He tried to rewrite those foundational laws, the 12th Amendment, the Electoral Count Act, and others. He makes jokes about his first day that aren't funny. He talks at times like a tyrant. He's discussed suspending the Constitution. He seems to believe that his particular gripes about the way that an election is run or a court rules or the system plays out supersede the laws that he is obliged to take an oath to protect and defend. I would not put somebody like that in office. I think that would be a mistake. I think it's inexplicable given the alternatives. And I think we should take him seriously when he conveys that he does not hue to the same norms as we at National Review would like. That is, of course, a separate question from whether or not it would work. And it wouldn't, I think, work should he wish to become a dictator, not just because of the constitutional order that I just described, but also because Donald Trump is extremely lazy. Donald Trump is frivolous. Donald Trump is capricious. And since he was last president, he's also old. The combination of those two things don't lead me to lay awake at night worrying that Trump will become a dictator. But they do lead me to worry a great deal about a country that would put him into office once again and about any effort that he might make. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I'm not suggesting with this analogy, that Joe Biden is a dictator. He is not. But it mattered that Joe Biden has tried to push the limits of his authority, even though he has failed. It's excellent and vivifying that the Supreme Court has prevented much of Biden's executive overreach. But it is still a problem that we have presidents, one after the other, who come into office and try it. It should mean something to take that oath. So that the system will undoubtedly hold does not mean it's always going to be pleasant when Donald Trump does what he does. And of course, the worst example of this 
came in 2020, far worse than the behavior of most presidents in American history. He did not accept the results of a free and fair election. He tried to steal it. He failed, as he was always going to do, but that he tried should have been disqualifying. And the system itself, the very thing that I'm lionizing, should have moved at that point to tell him you are not allowed to run again. Yeah, so Maddie, I accept Charlie's uh, distinction here entirely. I think it's the correct one. He doesn't honor the system. He doesn't have respect for the system. He doesn't understand the system. If he could have in 2020, he he would have dealt a severe blow to the system by having Mike Pence unilaterally uh, reject the the electoral count or, or send it back to Congress or the states or whatever exactly he would have done. But so, you know, th- that's th- that's alarming. <clears throat> we should never look past that. But he's going to be 78 years old. He has zero attention span. Every single center of power in Washington, I don't care how, you know, what list the Heritage Foundation is coming up with, with thousands of, of pro-Trump potential appointees, all the centers of power are going to still be arrayed against him. And he's going to have this kind of layer of mostly kind of acting, you know, cabinet officials and, and high-level officials who, if all goes in, as planned, and I think we, we expect will be uh, more loyal to him than the, the first time around. Uh, some, some of these people are very smart and impressive. A lot of them aren't, you know, being less less impressive than the first time around, trying to, to Im- impose their will and uh, his, his will <clears throat> and act on every true social post after he's watched a, an episode uh, of, of something on Fox, the, the same way they did the first time around, and you know, where he's made the most threatening sounds, of course, is is uh, targeting his political opponents through the Justice Department. Now, I I think this is this has happened to Trump and, and his his allies. That doesn't mean two wrongs make a right, or that he should be talking this way, or or let alone do it. But if he does it, you know, the courts are going to be standing in the way. And wh- where you have to go with sort of the the maximalist Kagan uh, dictator theory is that he defies the courts and the executive branch and and centers of power in Washington including you know ultimately the military follow him and i just that's not going to happen yeah i think it's giving him way too much credit and i agree with charlie um in his his faith in the american political system and how it's been set up to withstand precisely this type of threat um and, you know it's fair to to note that that donald trump has in some ways, the the personality and and the, the temperament and the cult following um, that dictators have, and and he he's been known to sort of see in other dictators or in, in dictators, I should say, other dictators, but to see in them a sort of kindred spirit <laughs> um, in very uh, cringeworthy and, and startling ways um, in his in his foreign policy. But yeah, I, I don't. Does he have the power? Does he have the organization? Does he have the discipline? No, I also think you know, you mentioned this with, in terms of uh, using the Justice Department to attack your enemies, and the way that um, the Democrats have done that to Trump, and and you rightly say you know two wrongs don't make a right, but I do I do think that there is a there's a bit of projection going on here, in terms of fear of illiberalism and executive overreach. I mean, it's actually in in that piece in in Kagan's piece where he he's talking about. You know, if you if you think the threat is is this serious, then you throw everything you've got at it. He's comparing him to, to Hitler at one point, um, and you know we've we've seen that we we've seen sort of executive overreach with um, the student loans. You know, we've we've seen um, this mismanagement at the border, um, and we, we've seen the the weaponization of the Justice Department. And so, you know, I think I think they're they're seeing in Trump some a tendency that they themselves have. Um, it's also just an exaggeration that's uh, that's been overdone by this point because we're used to hearing these comparisons, and this is nothing bold or new. Uh, we've been hearing that that Trump is Hitler since 2016, um, and it's just ultimately unconvincing. So, MBD, two two points one. We've talked a, a little bit about this. You know, the 51% or whatever it is of, of uh, Iowa Republicans who support Trump, they're not doing it because they think he's going to be a dictator. But 
Some of them are doing it because of the qualities that make people like uh, Bob Kagan fear Trump is going to be a dictator. You know, the, his bigness, his strength, the sense that he's bigger than the system and can overall the system. So, so what do you think of that aspect element of this debate? And then also, I think one thing that was notable about the Kagan op-ed, if that's where they are now on Trump, where are they going to be if he actually wins again? I mean, I wouldn't be, the, the logic of this argument kind of goes to assassinate the guy. You know, you got to eliminate this this threat because nothing is going to stand in the way and he's he's going to destroy our, our way of, of, of life. Yeah. I think that's, that's well, well said. I, um, yeah, I do think that voters, uh, imagine that Trump, you know, in some way transcends politics and that, you know, they're supporting him. Uh, I think a lot of Republican voters in an inarticulate way correctly sense that, it's not just a problem of the state, but that progressives are able to use the state and coordinate with private sources of power and institutions in order to unfairly gain, gain, you know, the American system and society, you know, and sort of like, that's how you got trans acceptance was, a kind of um, uh, spontaneously coordinated effort across government, corrupt science, corrupt universities, corrupt uh, um, uh, psychological boards, etc., to institute this ideology, you know, inflict this ideology on them. And so they imagine they need someone who's like bigger than politics, bigger than just an office holder. And that, that guy right now is Trump. Um, now Trump's not going to do anything about that in a way, like he's not offering a kind of, you know, Victor Orban style. I'm going to defund, uh, you know, I have a program for defunding these institutions for the left and then refunding them, uh, on conservative, uh, uh, basis going forward. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that, and I do think that the we saw in the lead up to the twenty twenty election in places like the Atlantic, and now we're seeing it again. This like softening up of the ground for extra legal resistance to Trump, um, you know, and I have no doubt it will come if he is elected. Uh, even if he wins the popular vote, I think you will see Washington, you know, occupied by scores of thousands of anti-Trump activists who hope to somehow prevent his inauguration. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, this is the rhetoric you would use to justify it, um, is to basically present him as a total threat to the constitution. And I simply don't believe that for the reasons you've all articulated. And I wrote about this week in the first Trump term, the danger was not, an excess of Trumpian authority, the danger was chaos, was that he just, um, you know, he would issue an order and then his subordinates would undermine it, contradict it, never put it through. He would never follow up. Uh, and you could never even just know what American policy was. He would say, we're withdrawing from Syria. And then three weeks later, the White House would announce a different policy altogether of we're putting more troops in Syria temporarily. Um, you know, it was, and it's chaos that I fear in a in a second Trump administration. So that that's especially a, because he'll, sorry, he'll come in as a lame duck. Yeah. So that's a segue. The extra question to you, Charlie: If Donald Trump is elected again, you would expect his term to be better, worse, or basically the same as the first time around? Well, I think worse, because the vast majority of the first Donald Trump term was informed by existing conservative institutions, such as the remnants of the Republican Party, as you saw in the tax bill, the Federalist Society, as we saw with his appointments, and the many mainstream figures that he initially appointed. 
But the second one won't be. They've made that clear. Now, whether or not his preferred staff can make it past the Senate, I don't know. But there's a lot more to an administration than just Senate-ratified nominations. And I have a feeling that if Trump does win again, he's really going to go out on a limb. Maddie. Uh, yeah, it would definitely be worse for all those reasons. And also, I think he's just become genuinely unhinged in, <laughs> in, in many ways. <laughs> Less hinged. MBD. there's less less hinging to go there's still some hinging left that can be lost (laughs) Uh, there's part of me that I don't know just I'm open to surprises Um, everything is a surprise maybe it'll be better uh, in the second term around because he will be term limited I get the sense that people are exhausted politically you know a way they weren't the, in the, 2015 the public or 29 or 29 yeah or 2019 so why would that yeah why would that make things better um well just like if you're worried about civil war like you should be worried about having a society that's like made up of 17 year old men but we're much more a society of like 61 year old men mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and like finally the upside of our f- fertility crisis right yeah like we're just <laughs> we're, we're all too we're old and older. tired for a revolution and civil war yeah we're an older more tired um <laughs> more worn out kind of people and uh, this so, is such a know, classic just, instance of mbd optimism <laughs> well i'm just saying you know like you know it's just like i i just don't see like Pete Buttigieg, like, putting on a little bit of war paint and inspiring, like, tens of millions of people to rise up. Um, you know, just not how it's going to work. So <clears throat> I'll say worse. My, my hesitation about saying worse kind of goes to MBD's point. It's just, it's it's so conventional. It, it's There's some likelihood is wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would say a number of the Trump successes the first time around were... Uh, you know, the the way was paved by the conservative establishment, what is the federal society or, you know, the Paul Ryan tax plan. But there were some genuinely interesting and constructive things that were different. You know, the way they figured out the border by the end, Operation Warp Speed, although everyone wants to disown it, you know, and now it's a huge conspiracy by, by Big Pharma. And the Abraham Accords, all, all kind of like, no, we're not accepting the conventional wisdom. We're looking at a different way of, of doing it. And we're going to have some actually some some smart and talented people just kind of grind down on this problem and, and come up with solutions. So I think they'll, 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 be, they'll be some of that. Um, but it just what we talked about and the reasons why he won't be a dictator are also probably reasons he won't be uh, a very uh, effective president, which will you know be, be a good thing in some respects and a, a bad thing. And others with that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at naturalview.com. Your way around our metered paywall, your way. If you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, your way. If you want to, to comment on articles and blog posts, to get exclusive invitation to calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around. A great gift for that discerning reader you might know. Uh, out there. So please, if you haven't already, consider one way or the other joining tens of thousands of of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, we got a big office Christmas party coming up later tonight, and you're looking forward to getting it on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the party. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of you guys in a long time, even the, and um, I think I missed last year's party. I was, I think I was sick. I might have had COVID. I don't remember. Um, and you know, and then I think it's been a while. So um, I haven't seen Ramesh in a long time, and um, I don't know. It sounded like you guys had planned a fun event, and I think Caroline wants to sing a duet in karaoke. So we'll get to it. All right. And <clears throat> Maddie, uh, possibly as a, as a preview of this party, you had dinner with some colleagues. Yeah. So lots of people are in town for this, this party. And um, uh, some of us got together last night in Soho 
uh, for dinner, which was just really fun. And it's always just good to to see people in the flesh who you deal with on a daily basis, if not near daily basis, um, and just catch up and remember that even though we're all sort of atomized in this uh, modern modern office culture, we're all part of the same thing and, and working together. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, Charlie, who lives in the midst of Red America, picks up uh, uh, <coughs> political intelligence at a, at a real bar and a real beach while the rest of you and our staffers mm-hmm. are in Soho, totally, totally out of touch with real America. Charlie, what have you been up to? Well, I think my light item is actually perfectly in line with these, although with a different cast of characters. My parents, as I said on the last episode, have been staying and you plan all of these big things, you know, at a nice restaurant, we went to Universal Studios and so on. But actually, some of the best bits are just doing the normal things you do in your day, picking the kids up from school with my parents there or going to the diner with our friends and taking my parents along. I always forget those are where the magic lies in visits because I don't see my parents as often as I would given that I moved to America. So I have been reading this uh, book that I've had for a little while called The New Makers <clears throat> excuse me, of, of Modern Strategy. It is the third and uh, what's a de facto series on the makers of modern strategy uh, coming out you know, every couple decades or so. And our sometime colleague, Hal Brands, who writes for us occasionally, is the editor of this thing. It's about... Uh, it's a thousand pages long. You, you would not want to read all the way through it. Alec, if you're listening, I'm not recommending that you, you pick this up and, and make it uh, a bedside table <laughs> reading, but it, it's a fantastic volume just to, to dip in and out of. I, I learned so much about so many uh, different uh, eras of, of, um, uh, of geopolitics and war making, uh, whether in, in Asia or Europe. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, Abigail Anthony writing on Taylor Swift is just a thing no. of beauty. No. She all is Swifties, one woman. All and our Swifties uh, object. I guess I'm the only one, Abigail, but I object. No, you're not the only well, one. Well, I'm just saying Abigail, <laughs> Abigail, Anthony, Abigail Anthony is a brave woman like i mean this is she is taking on the uh idol of our age and <laughs> not sparing anything this she is uh i mean just she's the maccabees she's samson she <laughs> is uh just the bravest woman i know i i just commend her to you so did you see the babylon b headline that after two straight losses the chiefs were trading taylor swift for blake lively <laughs> so Maddie, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Michael's piece, Lame Ducks and Dictators, um, which explained why we shouldn't be too worried about Trump, which I, I enjoyed. A rare piece Charlie. of MBD optimism. <laughs> Charlie? My piece is a post by Noah Rothman, Will Joe Biden Pardon Hunter Biden, in which he lays out what he calls a fiendish problem And it really is. I suppose I hadn't thought beyond the next election. But it seems possible that Hunter Biden is convicted, goes to prison, is in prison while his father is president for federal crimes that can be pardoned, but that probably won't be. And if Joe Biden, understandably, is as upset about the situation as he seems to be, then this is going to take a real toll on him. And as Noah points out, there are all sorts of horrible implications here, such as that Hunter would be more likely to get a pardon if he didn't run again or win. If he does, he'll have to be president while presiding over this is going to hurt his reputation. It's a total mess. I just hadn't thought beyond the trial, I suppose. I hadn't thought about that. And Noah laid it out well. So I'm going to be boring this week. I'm picking yet another Andy McCarthy piece on the Hunter Biden subpoena and his defiance of it, which for me was full of new 
legal insights, uh, one of which is that when you get a subpoena, I hope this never never happens to me, so I don't have to use this advice personally, but when you get a subpoena, you, you have to show up, but you don't have to test, testify. So if Hunter just gone in the room and said, I'm taking the fifth, he would have, he, he would have satisfied uh, the subpoena. And al- also a- Andy um, highlighted a lot of the, the nuances we we're discussing earlier, such as that if Republicans really want to take advantage of their impeachment inquiry, they shouldn't subpoena Hunter prior to their impeachment inquiry authorization. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. We rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Maiden and Donors Trust. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.